The reading today is from Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 9. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, we've been looking at Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, through the spring, and we come to the final uh, sermon in that series. Uh, specifically, as we've gone through Isaiah, we've been looking uh, for the messianic texts, the prophecies about the coming Christ. Messiah and Christ is just the same concept. Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ, and Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So we're looking at how, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah talked about the Christ who was going to come. He was doing this because Israel's human leaders had let them down. The kings had failed. Israel was overrun. The temple was sacked. The people were exiled. And Isaiah comes with God's word of comfort, promising the people that they're not abandoned, that the fallible human kings will be replaced with a divine king. And the prophecies build a picture of this divine king, sketching out what he's like, his character, what he will do. And increasingly and surprisingly, revealing that this divine king will not be a, a king of majesty, and power, and armies, and death, and violence, but rather he will come as a suffering servant, that he is the one that will suffer violence, that he is the one who will be wounded and punished. And specifically in verses 52 and 53, uh, chapters 52 and 53, Isaiah writes a poem, a love song to this Messiah, what he calls the suffering servant, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that those verses are a set of stanzas of a poem or of a song or a psalm singing the praises of this servant. Each stanza giving an increasingly vivid and specific description of who this, who this servant will be. It's as if, through Isaiah, God is distilling down the essence of the Christ of the Messiah. He is pointing us to the elemental things that we should not miss when he shows up. It's like the core of Christianity. The basics, the essentials, boil down into this unmissable poem. Last week, we saw that um, some fundamental principles of theology are at stake. We looked at the substitutionary atonement 
of this Messiah, of the Christ, the fact that Christ, Jesus, who is the suffering servant, goes to the cross to suffer in our place as a substitute for us, that God's judgment is put out on him instead of us, and that he makes an atonement for us. And here in the last few verses, Isaiah continues on this theme. In fact, as you'll see, he repeats it again and again to make sure we don't miss it. So let's have a look at it. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Yet, what, what is Isaiah saying there? The verse before was, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will, the Lord's will to crush him. The servant, Jesus, in and of himself had done no wrong. In fact, we know from the New Testament that Jesus lived a perfect life, obeyed every law of God, and was fully faithful in doing God's will. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Crush is a very strong word in Hebrew. Dake. It means to crush, to smash into pieces, to grind into dust or earth. It's essentially to unmake, tear down. Just as God created human beings from the dust and made, created them into human uh, physical beings like us, Christ is crushed and dismantled, obliterated. And his life is made an offering for sin. This is actually an interesting verse. If you look in different translations, you will see that these verses are translated in a different way. If you've got an NIV, if you look, you'll see a note where it says, and, th and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. Well, literally, in the Hebrew, it is, and though you make his life an offering. And the question is, who is the you there? You can see the NIV puts the Lord. This is about what God is doing, and it puts the Lord there, Yahweh the God of Israel. But it's a strange construction that is not seen anywhere else in the Bible. And some people think that you there is Jesus. And though Jesus makes his life an offering for sin, the trouble is it's not Jesus who makes the offering. An offering for sin, and it is the word used of a sacrifice at the temple, it is sinners who make an offering. And so perhaps the best way of translating that is as it is written in the Hebrew. And though you, he's talking to us, and though you make his life an offering for sin, somehow he will prosper through that crushing. What is at stake here? Well, it's a strange situation that God, the Father, would want to crush, would want to obliterate his son. Why would he want to do that? There must be an extraordinary reason. 
There must be something momentous at stake. This is not a simple thing. This is worthy of pondering. And as one theologian put it, the reason is that God wants human beings, us, to offer up Jesus on the altar of our sins so that he can be a full and sufficient sacrifice, payment for our sin. So there is nothing standing between us and God. He's saying that when Christians worship, when Christians think about God or approach God, whenever we are in proximity to the things of God, we should hold Christ as our offering. Because he is the payment for our access. He is the one that allows us to freely say our Father, as we just prayed today. He is the one that allows us to gather in Jesus' name right now and worship so freely. And the Christians should always remember that. We never stand alone. We never stand on our own record. We never stand naked. We have to be holding Christ as our sacrificial offering before God. And that is the only reason we can draw close to him. A crushed Jesus who becomes a sacrificial offering on the altar of our sin allows Christians to worship, to pray, to be the body of Christ. And yet there's a problem here. It's God's will to crush Christ so that we might have access. But to be an offering for sin is a dead end. It is to be destroyed. It's negative. Not only is ignoble, it is terminal. It ends in death. So how can the rest of the verse be true? And though the Lord, although we make his life an offering for sin, he, this is the servant, will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How is that possible? How can they be prospering and life after death? Remember, Isaiah is speaking 700 years before Jesus. It must have exercised the minds of the people back then. How could this be pulled off? Verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. Sorry, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. What is the opposite of the light of life there? The darkness of death. It's God's will that the servant be punished, that the sin be expunged by him being crushed. In effect, Jesus is the executor of God's will, but unto himself. But it's a completely dead-end scenario. Literally dead-end. It ends in death. 
And yet somehow, the same Jesus, the same suffering servant, will see the light of life. It's a mystery. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. These ideas might seem complex and a little esoteric, but they really are central to the gospel. All the ideas in Isaiah's prophecies funnel down into these verses. These are the essence, the distilled core. And all these ideas are picked up in the New Testament. In fact, when Paul writes to his friends of the church in Philippi, he essentially paraphrases this in a poem that he writes. I'd like to read that to you. This is Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. See how he's following Isaiah's ideas? Jesus is with God. And yet he gives up the glory and the beauty and the power of that position to become a human being, to be made nothing, to be humiliated, to become the suffering servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the monstrous inversion that we have to grasp with as Christians. The Lord of life ends up dying. Ends up dying on a cross. Going to the grave. It's like this terrible descent from the pinnacles of heaven to the depths of hell and death. But then there's this amazing reversal. This is still Philippians. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Notice how he's paralleling Isaiah again. There is the descent, but then there is the exaltation. Look at verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, because he put out his life. He will be exalted because of this descent into death. What are we to make of this? And remember, this is like the culmination of all the prophecies in Isaiah, a distillation of the essence of the theology of the gospel that we need to understand. And it's presented here in both cases in Isaiah and through Paul in the letter to the Philippians as a poem, as a psalm. In fact, 
where Paul writes this down in Philippians. It might actually have been one of the first Christian hymns where they sang this as the essence of their faith. In one of his books, uh, Perlando, C.S. Lewis has this delightful image of heaven and he imagines it as this immense and wondrous dance. He imagines it as music, as song. Everyone has a part. Everyone hears the same music. Everything is centered on God, on Christ. And there's this vast stately harmony as all of creation and all people dance together joyfully. It's a lovely image. And to become a Christian is to begin to be part of that dance. All of us start off as ordinary human beings in this vast chaotic world, the throng of humanity, a cacophony of different ideas and beliefs and different cultures, all mashed up together. And then amid the, the tumult, amid the roar of all the things that are possible and talked about, or every video and book and film and image that you've ever seen, you get a glimpse or an echo of this music. The glimpse of something that is transcendent. The something that is beyond this world. For me, it wasn't music, literally. It wasn't even words. It was an image. It scared me to death when I was about five years old, five or six years old, very young. My grandmother died, and we inherited her Bible. And she had this huge white leather uh, family Bible. And all our names were written in this elegant script in the front. All the children, it was like the family tree. And it sat pride of place in, in my parents' house. And through it, all these beautiful gold pages and inscripted pages were pictures. And there was one of St. Stephen. St. Stephen was the first deacon, and he was stoned. Although in the picture in this Bible, he is bound, and there are stones around him. He is bloodied and bruised, but he's also pierced with arrows. It's all blood and guts, apart from his face, which is extremely vivid. And he's looking up to heaven with this extraordinary glow, this extraordinary expression in his face. And that picture haunted me. What was he looking at? All these arrows through him, all these bruises and blood and punctures. What was up there? What could possibly take your mind off what was happening to him physically? It was the first glimpse I ever had that there might be more to life. I was, as I say, five or six years old. It terrified me at the time. I wasn't doing any theology. It was just a glimpse. But in Lewis's picture of the dance, his metaphor, the gospel, that's how the gospel comes. Not clearly at first, but as faint, some kind of distant ethereal music. Poignant, beautiful, enchanting, that comes amidst the roar of the world. And as it grows in strength, you begin to notice it everywhere. But how to begin to dance? How to join this great dance? 
How do you dance in the middle of chaos? How do you dance in the midst of the tumult of the world? Well, first of all, you've got to focus on the music. So it's clear in your head. You understand it. You know what the rhythm is. And then you've got to begin to clear your piece of the dance floor. You've got to adopt the right stance. You've got to adopt the right attitude. And then you've just got to begin. And at first you're going to be clumsy, and the people around you will be weirded out. What is this person doing? But as you continue, as you begin to move with that music, you notice that other people are doing so too. You notice that you're part of this bigger pattern. And you dance more confidently. And the music gets stronger. And pretty soon you realize you're a dancer. The first part, though, is to glimpse or to hear or to see clearly the essence of the music. To see clearly and hear clearly exactly what is at stake. Basic Christianity. You need to understand it and think about it. What is basic Christianity? When I first became a Christian, I was told the gospel is that you are simultaneously more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, but also more loved than you can ever dare hope. More sinful, this downward movement, but also more loved, this upward movement. And that the Christian life is that movement. It is that dance because it follows the trajectory of Jesus' life and the trajectory of this suffering servant. Christian growth is to understand that movement and to begin to follow it, to dwell on it, to study it, to unpack the meaning, and to begin to shape your life in accord with Christ's life. And it starts with him. For he bore the sin of many. It starts with recognizing that he took upon himself your sin. And with it, he accomplished two things. If you think about Jesus on the cross, you should think about two things. He conquers or makes atonement for our sin by experiencing God's wrath. And he conquers death. Two things. When I was at uh, seminary studying theology, um, most of what I learned, I learned in dialogue and discussion with other students, talking it out, making sense of the Bible. But there was one place that I really had to go by myself, and that was understanding Jesus' death. What happened on that cross? It's the very center of Christianity, and it's the very center of understanding what he did for us. And, and for me, it was like the, uh, the moment of illumination, at least, showing how theology, knowledge about Jesus, turned into worship. How understanding becomes faith and commitment. If you've never done it, I recommend you try doing this. 
Look at Jesus on the cross in the Bible. You know, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell you the words that he said on the Bible, on the cross. What were his words, the final words, before he died? And it's, it's amazing how you can look at those words and you can make sense of the journey that he was on. The first, this is in Matthew and Mark, is what is known as the cry of dereliction. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he's on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sapakathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians have pondered that one for centuries. But the basics are, it is the first and only time that God, that Jesus refers to his Father just as God. Everywhere else, he speaks and prays to his Father, except here. Why would that be? Because on the cross, the Bible tells us, Jesus became sin for us. He took all our ugliness, all our unholiness, all our unworthiness onto himself. He, took, he became sin, the Bible says. Paul says in uh, Corinthians, I think. He became so ugly that God turned away from him. The father who looked with delight on his beloved son turned away because Jesus became so ugly, unbearable. Where sin is, God cannot be. Jesus was abandoned at that moment when he became sinful, and he lost his father. If you look at the Gospel of John, Jesus says on the cross, right before he dies, it is finished. So we know that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He became sin. He experienced God's wrath rather than his love. And he paid the cost of that wrath. And it was finished. It was accomplished. When we say Jesus is our sin offering, that work has been accomplished, and that's why we can approach God so boldly. But there was something else. If you read Luke, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said that, he breathed his last. What is going on there? Well, we know that Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature, and he had a human nature. The Word became flesh. God becomes incarnate in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is pure spirit. He has his own spirit. But when he was baptized by John the Baptist, he is given a new human spirit, just as we receive the spirit when we are baptized. And we know it was a human spirit because he gives it to his father, and then he dies. And he had just said to the criminal who was next to him, this day you will be in paradise with me. So Jesus loses his human spirit and he dies. What happens to him then? He goes to the grave. And that's where 
really, the Bible doesn't tell us very much. What does it mean that the Lord of life went to the grave, died? Well, Paul says he swallowed up death. Death was not something external to him when he died. Somehow, Jesus made it internal, took it into himself to defeat it. What could that possibly mean? So you have God, the Father, who loves Jesus, his Son, who he sends as a sin offering, crushes, to death. The Father abandons the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is completely alone, facing in the midst of death. He's got rid of all his power. You know, he emptied himself when he became a human being. But he remains completely alone with death. And somehow, he takes it into himself. Now, if you've ever thought about death, you ever seen a horror movie, you ever woken up from a bad dream of being buried alive, you've thought about the decay, you've thought about all the terrible aspects there are, the grief of death, the horror of death and war. Somehow, the son takes all that into himself. And in the midst of that, though he's separated from God by all the sin in the world and all the death in the world, he remains the faithful servant. He continues to love God, even though God does not love him. And somehow, in a way that we can't imagine, stretched to the limit away from his father, his continued faithfulness in abandonment, in death, allows all that to be swallowed up, to remove, to be removed. Jesus never let go, never lost faith, even when he was abandoned. And because of that, somehow, he engulfs everything that separates us from God so that through him we can be reunited. Now, I don't understand all of that. But I do think the more you dwell on it, the more you discover the depths to which Jesus descended, the more you will appreciate how much you are loved, the value of what Jesus did. And if he was willing to do that for you personally, not in general, you personally, how much are you worth? Your worth is infinite. You will never have to worry about being abandoned. You'll never have to worry about being alienated or unloved or unlovable. The deeper you dwell on and dig into the depths that Christ went, the more exalted your view of his love and his worth, and hence your worth, you'll have. And that is how to be a Christian. It is the constant unpacking of the gospel. The constant discovery of how foul we really are, how costly our sin really is. And in discovering that and confessing it, how exalted 
We are in Christ. The Christian life is that dynamic. Confession, exaltation. Confession, exaltation. Forever. You know, one day we're going to see him face to face. And the Bible says that he still carries the wounds. He will have, Jesus will have a physical body. And as he showed to his disciples, he will still carry the wounds of the cross. And when we see him, I think there we're going to get a glimpse of just how much it costs. And it's going to be awful, and it's going to be beautiful. Because it's what gets us into heaven and relationship with the Father. So my recommendation. Theology is not just a set of ideas. It's really a way of understanding your faith. Why is it that we worship? Why is it that we are moved? It is by thinking about and praying about what Christ has done for us. It's by holding him as our offering. Every chance and every time we come to God. It's by recognizing what he did for us and therefore how valuable we are in his eyes. We're going to come to the table in a moment. As you eat and drink, I want you to think about that. He has given all of himself, literally, so you can eat and drink him, so that you can be renewed. As you do that this morning, think about what it cost him. Think about what it means for your relationship with him. And you'll begin to taste the sweetness of the gospel. You'll begin to participate in that dance and join others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through Christ, sin and death have been swallowed up. That through his willing sacrifice, we have been given hope, a new life, a new identity, a new destination. Lord, we thank you that through Christ, you are willing to pay such a cost for us sinners. Help us make that the basis of our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.